Welcome to All About Campion, an introduction to loving the films of Jane Campion. I'm Ingo Kang, a critic at the Washington Post, and I'm joined as usual by my co-host Daniel Schrader, a podcast producer at Slate. Happy to be here as always. This is the second episode of our Campion season. Our first episode was dedicated, of course, to her masterwork, The Piano. Today, we're skipping 16 years and four films ahead to Bright Star. The 2009 movie is about the real-life romance between the poet John Keats, played by Ben Whishaw, and Fanny Braun, played by Abby Cornish. The title of the film, Bright Star, is actually the name of a poem that Keats wrote for Fanny. In contrast to the cascade of accolades that we mentioned last week for the piano, there was a much more muted response to Bright Star, though it did open to wide acclaim from critics, as well as Oscar and BAFTA nominations for costume design. I actually think there's a lot of similarities to the piano here. Both are centered on love triangles in the 19th century, and there's an intensity of emotion based on being seen and admired for one's creativity in a world that's generally hostile to it. Also, it's about white people. What? (laughs) Just kidding. But the piano is hot and sticky and sweaty with lust, and Bright Star is about as chaste as a romance can be. I don't know. Touching the wall was pretty racy. (laughs) Campion said about the film, I did some sexy stuff. Now I'm doing some innocent stuff. So Jane Campion received a letter from a very famous Hollywood person about Bright Star, and I want you to tell me who you think wrote it. Dear Jane, bravo, 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 bravo. My favorite film of yours. I don't like period pieces like that. I love this. Never has heartache been so realistically and movingly portrayed as Abby taking to her bed, the room full of butterflies, the lover's kisses, Abby lying down on her bed, the wind through the window, the curtain acting like a shroud. Abby and Ben touching. Lovers. Brilliant. I love it. So, so, so charming. Love your fan. Well, who I would hope it would be is Pedro Almodovar (laughs) for some nice podcast synergy. But I assume that that is not the answer. This is a tough question. I don't know. Uh, Martin Scorsese. Not too far off. Oh, Robert De Niro? Not that close. Quentin Tarantino? Yes. That was actually my first guess, but I was like, that's a little too, that's a little <laughs> too dumb of a guess. So, wow. By the way, I'm really impressed that you guessed correctly. Thank you. I, what can I say? I have a talent. I don't know what the talent is, but... Uh, I don't either. What, what a weird letter to send and receive. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree with him, but like... Listen, there's nothing here about feet. I think we should be happy with that. Tell me what happens at Bright Star. The mountains and mountains of plot in this movie. Where do I even start? I feel like I'm in a Pedro Almodovar film with the amount of plot involved. <laughs> um, so as you've already said, the film is the story of... Fanny Braun and John Keats, their love affair before his death at the age of 25. 
basically it's just the story it's their love story from their first meeting his relationship with his close friend mr brown who is also uh fanny's kind of sparring partner at first with wit until she takes up with uh mr keats and then we chart their love story as they fall madly in love with each other and then he gets tuberculosis and dies so we watched this movie together and you told me toward the end that it reminded you of the iconic 2002 film a walk to remember (laughs) uh do you still stand by this comparison Having watched it a second time, maybe not as much, but I <laughs> I do like the glib joke about it because like, yeah, in some ways it is very much a walk to remember because a walk to remember is explicitly about a young man who falls for a young woman who is uh, dying of a terminally, I think she has terminal cancer or something. And so like, he decides to give her the life that she, like basically he decides to check off her bucket list before she dies. And not that I'm saying that like anything that explicit happened in this film, but like Fanny Braun was able to fulfill Keats's desire for that sort of like feminine muse that he so longed for apparently in writing Endymion and so like in some ways yes it is the same movie because he is able to realize a type of love that he just seems to have written about before is that a part of a walk to remember well part of walk to remember is like is that's not about no i'm just saying that like she in walk to remember was able to like do the things she dreamed of before she died and he oh, I see. was able to achieve the thing he dreamed of before he died which is the love of a woman in this way and also like in in almost like a deatific way i remember i actually was thinking a lot about um the Fault in Our Stars. Oh, God. I didn't see the movie. hated the book. Thought it was so dumb. It was just trauma porn. But anyway, why did this remind you of Fault in Our Stars? I actually think I had, like, very much the same impression you did. I first saw this movie probably, like, a year or two after I came out on DVD. I remember being generally like, oh, that was, like, pretty good. I don't think that I realized at the time that it was a Jane Campion movie. I was just there because I wanted some, like, period prettiness. And I simultaneously enjoyed it and also was like, why am I watching this man die for two hours? You signed yourself up for that one. (laughs) I guess, like, the whole appeal of, like, a romance where one of the people dies, like, is a little, like, the appeal of that is a little bit elusive to me. But I did like enough, like, stuff around all of that that I was actually, like, pretty into this movie. I mean, I guess it's kind of appealing to me because then at least you have an end date for that person. (laughs) Like all your romances. Yeah. What's romance? 
Um, so I think about, like, going into the movie, you were talking about how you, I think you said something like, this is the kind of movie I usually really take care to avoid watching. Yeah, like, what you just said about, like, oh, I put it on because it just seemed like a period drama that I could watch, whatever. That is literally the thing that I run from. I'm, it's just, it, it just seems like it's going to be so boring and nothing's going to happen and I'm just going to, like, watch the seasons change in England, which isn't very exciting because they're all wet. And <laughs> so, like, I just can never get hyped for a drama, a period drama with fancy costumes. Like, feels like once you've seen one of them, you've seen them all. But that was not the case with this movie. Here's what I will say about this film. It is very quiet. It is very muted. It's pretty somber. Um, I don't think that anyone speaks, like, above a murmur, like, the whole time until the very end when Fanny learns that um, Keats has died in Rome on what was supposed to be a kind of solitary stay in Italy. And then she just, like, lets out this, like, feral animal cry. And that's probably the loudest thing in the movie. It's also an extremely pretty movie. There are a lot of these, like, really painterly shots. And so I agree with you that, yeah, in many ways, it is exactly, like, this kind of, like, hushed um, sort of, like, slice of life thing that you hate. I will say that, like, the thing that I liked the most about it is probably what I liked the most about it the first time, which is this, like, push and pull, like, this fight over Keats by Fanny and Mr. Brown. And I think it's just, like, a really weird like, stakes to have in a movie like this, in a romance like this, and the fact that, like, Mr. Brown is played by Mark from Parks and Recreation. Also, like, <laughs> It is really a little weird. jarring. Yeah. Um, but then I liked all of the other stuff that sort of, like, came with that. I looked this up, and it turned out that, like, this movie, which could be called I Love You, Man, came out the same year as I Love You, Man. I and saw then, I Love You, Man. I also I saw I Love yeah. You, Man. And there's this, like, sort of, like, weird... I don't know. I really was touched by the fact that, like... Sorry, like, Mark Brandanowicz, um, with, to which he will, like, always... Which is, Be like, referred, basically... Yes. Um, I really love the fact that, like, he was so open about his affection for Keats. Same. I I mean, I totally understood where he was. I, I really actually liked his character a lot of the time. Actually, I think I liked his character a lot more the first time I watched it than the second time. But, like, he's he's sharp. He's sassy. He um, doesn't suffer fools, but also thinks too many people are fools. And that's his actual fault. Is um, He's just a little too condescending. If he were a bit nicer, he'd be a lot more fun. Well, if he was just, like, a little bit nicer, he would basically be Mr. Darcy. Of course. But I, I liked... One of my favorite, like, first scenes is that 
literally that push and pull where uh, Fanny invites Keats alone for Christmas, and um, Br- Mr. Brown immediately is like steps in and is like, well, we already have plans and we have to leave right now anyway. So sorry, we'll talk to you later type of thing that like was a very fun, like back and forth because then Fanny just like leaves and, and Brown's like, I thought we were talking and she just doesn't even, doesn't even respond. Doesn't even come back. I, I really liked her like willfulness in that scene. Yeah. I guess probably like a better word than like push and pull is a tug of war. There's this, like, constant battle of, like, wanting Keats' attention because both Fanny and Brown know that Keats is something special, even though, like, nobody else seems to, like, really understand that. And because they believe themselves to be, like, the one person in the world who, like, really appreciates Keats' genius more than anyone else, um, they feel like this like great possessiveness about him. And I really feel like if you wanted to take that particular scenario and spin it out into like a comedy, I would watch that comedy. Same. Um, but I think that like the problem with Brown in his side of the tug of war of this very delicate rope that is John Keats is that his affection for... Keats feels tainted in a way that Fanny's never did because he and Keats are writing partners and are like working on projects together. And so like it was just so achingly clear that this mediocre 30 year old man had hitched his wagon to this like bright new talent that he has developed a friendship with but then developed a controlling friendship with so that like he can leech off of that talent as opposed to fanny who wants to just bathe in it i don't know if i thought of it as parasitically as you did i think one of the things i really liked about this movie is that if you are going to have any sort of show me a mr brown poem (laughs) If you are going to have any sort of romance in the film, what you need to have is barriers to that romance, right? Barriers to the happy ending. And you get some really, like, conventional barriers, um, one of which is money. Fanny would definitely like to marry Keats, but everyone knows that Keats has no money. He's actually in debt. Also, he doesn't have a job and refuses to get one. Well, but no, his job is poetry, Inku. <laughs> um, I think most poets would agree with me that that is not a job job. I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to the first episode of Girls where Lena Dunham makes a plea to her family, that her parents, that she, I'm, a voice, I'm the voice of my generation or a voice of a generation and then wakes up and they've left her no money. <laughs> So you have sort of like the barrier of like money and like the fear that like of like financial instability. And I think one thing that to know about Fanny also is that her dad is not in the picture. I think he's died by this point. And yes, he also died of tuberculosis. And so it's really incumbent upon her as like the eldest child in the family to kind of save the family by marrying well, which is why marrying Keats would be a disaster. 
But the other, but the other thing I really liked about this movie is that Keith and Fanny are sort of, they're sort of like equals in like their dependency on others. Fanny is obviously the daughter of like an upper middle class family or like an upper class family and she doesn't actually have any independence and she can't actually get married without her mother's permission and of course whatever money she gets is eventually going to be coming from her husband's coffers but you see that Keats himself is also sort of like feminized in this way and also he's like seen cuddling a cat which is like the cutest thing but he also is sort of like he's like basically homeless right He's only living off the patronage of other people. And so when Mr. Brown has like a whoopsie baby and he needs to like go away and like leave the place where he had a whoopsie baby, then like Keats has to go too. And when he gets sick and he needs a place of his own to like recuperate, he's dependent on the generosity or lack thereof of his rich friends. I think, as you said last night, he had a GoFundMe. <laughs> uh, uh, not a really great one, apparently. And so I, I, I thought it was, I mean, like, maybe sweet is sort of, like, overly romantic. But there is a sort of, like, meeting of uh, equals, in a sense. And, yeah, I found that, like, weirdly moving, I I agree with you there. I think that um, so much of the beginning of this movie is setting up Fanny as a woman who, like, yearns for something besides just, like, the life of family and the role that a woman is expected to have in a way. Not, like, that she's trying to break out and go get a job or anything, but, like, there's an... There's a, like, depth to the... There's the, like a depth to her like personal life and her inner life that uh, feels strikingly unique. Uh, like when it comes to her designing all of her own clothes, literally, she says, and like she does these special pleating patterns and and uh, pleats this beautiful collar for a dress um, at one dance, and like she is able to devote like so much time to these very intricate details. She even like at one point when Keats's brother passes, spends the entire night. Uh, embroidering this beautiful uh, tree into a pillowcase for Keats's brother's head to lie on uh, now that he's dead. Yeah, I think one of the really great things about like that first like opening hour is she is constantly devising gifts to give Keats. And so much of their relationship obviously is sort of like handing things to one another because they can't actually have sex and so one of the ways that they're able to actually communicate their love to each other is through letters and also but like also like on her side all of these gifts because she is creative and she wants to share her creativity with this guy because he she's also getting something out of reading his poems and like getting something out of his creativity definitely and that like it's clear that her creativity isn't just one of like practicality of just like, I can sew the things well because I have seals, but like there's, there's an art artistry to her work as well that like, I think is something that really is attractive to Keats. 
And um, that's part of what she gives to him is not just the actual gifts, but the creativity of her gifts. Yeah. And I think that the movie is so good about, like, without hammering it home in any way whatsoever, contrasting how female or creative pursuits associated with women are denigrated compared to the very, uh, <laughs> compared to um, something like poetry, which is in this world, like this like very like manly domain. Because when I think manly, I think poetry. <laughs> I think that like... Sorry, no, no, I think of, I think broetry. Goodbye. <laughs> well, uh... That's been, that's been it for, uh, thank you for, <laughs> us for another episode of All About Campion. We'll see if we're back next week, if Ingo joins the chat next time. I think there's something also just, like, really great about, like, watching Fanny enter these male-dominated spaces where all of these, like, stupid poets who are Keats's friends or Brown's friends and are never obviously going to go anywhere about, like, how exclusionary and pretentious they are. And also, at the same time, like, intensely boyish. Like, they're incredibly immature and juvenile. And it's just, like, such a great illustration of, you know... I I think this, like, movie has, like, a really great sense of, like, the more things change, the more things stay the same. There are certain things that are, like, extremely, like, of a certain milieu of, like, of 19th century England, and yet there are other times when everything feels, like, very contemporary. And I think that, like, both, like, the constant pranks that people are playing on other people in order to sort of entertain themselves and, like, show that they love their family members... Um, you can see that there, but then you can also sort of see, like, the flip side of, like, these people playing pranks because it's a way of saying, like, it's a way of, like, excluding people that they feel like it's not worth their time. And that's one of the reasons why Brown is constantly playing pranks on Fanny, including sending her, like, a valentine that's basically, like, a fuck you. I found that charming. I mean, you would. But, I mean, I get the buttons he was trying to push. He was, in some way, he was also trying to make, even though he didn't want it to happen, it seems, but also he did, like, he was trying to make Keats jealous. Yeah. Or at least, like, get some sort of rise out of Keats about this. Because, like, it, it seems that, like, this is a part of his life that he's not letting Brown into anymore. And so Brown is a bit getting jealous of that. So many shades of the piano there. Very. I have to say, like, one thing I also just sort of, like, appreciated about the visualness of Bright Star is how, like, almost, like, mousy and, like, overwhelmed Ben Wishell looked at all times compared to Abby Cornish, who, by the way, is, like, fantastic in this. Looking really womanly and just like the prime of her health and just like looking, if I say like filled out, I feel like it's going to like sound like a euphemism, but she just like seemed like a person who had like a body and it was like all working 
<laughs> compared to obviously what's going to happen with Ben Wishaw. And I did really enjoy like the contrast there. I think it's pretty rare to see sort of like the wayfish a, man and yeah. the sturdy woman. Yeah. I appreciated that. Um, I agree. Yeah. I th- I thought that that was a, a nice contrast and a nice flipping of the standard. I was a little bit worried on two accounts while we were watching this. Uh, one was I knew that this movie might be a little slow for you. What? <laughs> the other one was that I feel like you hate Ben Wishaw. <sighs> I don't hate Ben Wishaw. And if I say too much bad about Ben, then our friend Alex will come after me. But... um Alex just, doesn't listen to this podcast, so we're good. Of course not. Of course he doesn't. Um, I don't hate Ben Wishaw. It's just that, like, so often, I feel like I'm watching Ben Wishaw in a thing. I regret to inform you that Ben Wishaw found love through this movie. Oh, God. Did you already know about this? No, I had no idea. Oh, I think he... What are you talking about? Did you not did, read Did he and Mark Wikipedia? Brandanowitz hook up? <laughs> I certainly did not read the Wikipedia page for this movie. Did you not really? No. Oh. Apologies for thinking that you would do the bare minimum for our podcast. Hey, I watched the movie <laughs> twice. Fuck you. <laughs> I, I considered reading Keats' poetry, so that counts. Yes, it always counts when you think about doing something. Thank you. Ben Wishaw's uh, partner is the composer for this movie. Mark Bradshaw, I believe, is his name. Um, the other thing that we should probably know about this movie is that uh, Fanny Braun has apparently been a pretty maligned uh, historical or literary figure. That I did read about. See... What did- what I will say that like okay, so I didn't read the Wikipedia page for the movie, but I got sucked into some Wikipedia pages about Keats and Braun. So like, I'm aware of that drama and how this movie kind of plays into the more modern scholarship about Fanny Braun and her significance to Keats's life. But uh, what were you gonna say? I didn't. I didn't want to trample over where you were going. <laughs> even though I just did. (laughs) So the reason why Fanny Braun apparently had quite a terrible reputation is that his friends hated her. And basically later critics took up the assumption that she was not someone who was worthy of a worthy of the love of someone like the great John Keats. They were all her in her. Yes. And apparently, um, I read this amazing quote that I will now share. Apparently, some of his friends thought that, uh, like, the romance helped hasten Keats' death. Because they thought... Because I have a take about that, too, but go ahead. Because they thought, quote, the blood vessels in his lungs had burst under the stress of sexual frustration. Living so close to Fanny, but unable to consummate his love, which is some like grand incel shit. Damn. Everybody was pissed that John Keats found love and then died and then got famous. 
Yeah. And then took it out on the woman that was still alive. Yes. I feel like that's like a pretty pretty apt summary. It is also true that Jane can be on excise to certain parts of the romance, like the other woman that he was seeing. <gasps> and also the fact that like he wrote some mean stuff about her uh, from time to time in his letters. He called her nostrils a little painful. He called her feet tolerable. And in a way that would be really What would Quentin to- say? <laughs> And in a way that would be relatable to you, Daniel, he called her behavior monstrous. Well, that makes me like her even more. (laughs) Jane Campion is apparently like a sincere John Keats fan. And she decided she wanted to do this movie because she actually, quote unquote, fell in love with him through his letters. Well, and actually, that seems to be what caused people to reconsider Fanny Braun and her importance to Keats is the letters that she wrote back to him that were later published after the letters to her were published. Um, People were able to recognize the like actual importance that she had in his life and he had in hers by being able to see both sides of their relationship rather than just the letters that Keats had written to what everybody assumed was an unworthy recipient. Yeah. Um, did you like the clothes? Yes. There were a number of times that I just didn't think about them. But the times that I did, I was very drawn in by them. I loved her red top at the beginning that she's in. Uh, It's a very striking color. And it felt like one of the brightest colors of the entire movie. Yeah. And and then I really liked this one piece that she had that kept recurring that was like a a bluish-brownish thing. Thing that had all these circles on it. Yeah, it reminded me of like the Afghan from Roseanne. Yes, but classier colors. Yes, I mean like obviously like more elevated look. Right, but kind of like a patchwork like uh, knit or something garment that was like really interestingly crafted. Yeah, there was like a lot of like really shiny fabric, a lot of like colors you don't really see in period dramas there was like were all the bonnets oh (laughs) there was also like a silver gown that she wore with like purple gloves and it was very much like this is like a woman who is like out in the world wanting to be seen isn't that the dress where she made the like special collar that nobody else in the country had yeah, she was like, it's something with like a mushroom collar or something like that. It was that. like a three-tier mushroom collar or something. And there's this delightful moment where he says, but isn't isn't that woman behind you wearing it the same thing? And she turns <laughs> around and it's a mirror. Ugh, so charming. <laughs> I regret to inform you that you were charmed by Ben Whishaw. I will say, though, that speaking of the fashion... We did just laugh about the bonnets that everybody seems to be wearing in the film. And uh, my pet theory is that, like, Fanny just kept sewing more and more elaborate bonnets because she was so bored and nobody could tell her no. And so they all just had to wear these increasingly hideous 
bonnets because they wanted to support Fanny's fashion sense. But she herself didn't really wear them, right? Well, yeah, because she has more taste for herself, but you get a pr- you got to practice on somebody. I mean, I think it's, like, pretty clear that, like, her mom and her older sister or older relative are wearing these, like, lacy diaper-looking bonnets constantly. By the way, it is not canon that she sewed them. And uh, Fanny herself is just, like, her head is free. I, it, the really odd... Because it's too full of actual thoughts. The, uh... Of sinking thoughts, of amusing thoughts. Are you done? Maybe. (laughs) The really ugly bonnets actually reminded me a lot of, like, the really ugly hair in the piano. I think we forgot to talk about, like, how ugly the hair was on the piano. Yeah, that piano's wig was awful. (laughs) I hate you. We had actually talked, like, while watching the movie about, like, how ugly her hairstyle was. And it seemed to me that it was very much this sort of, like, distancing effect of, like, this is, like, what women of, like, that particular time and uh, class status, like, thought was attractive and that's like why they spent all of their time making themselves look like that and whatever the trend is like that's what they're going to follow and i think what was really great about uh about fanny's clothes even though they aren't sort of like consistently beautiful is that they are most definitely distinctive and so, to me, that suggested this sort of, like, woman who is, like, trying to figure it out. And not that she has already, because I think this takes place, like, for her, like, the age of, like, 18 to 20 or something along those lines. Yes, she met him at 18. But, like, someone who was, like, really trying hard to, like, to figure out, like, how to, like, stand out. I think Fanny would have liked art school if she had been born, like... 200 years later i totally agree with you well i mean and i think like those clothes also point out to me the like a hunger for something more than just putting on a bonnet that like her mom has in her future yeah she's not going to wear a lacy diaper like her mom definitely not um uh, but what you said about her being like 18 to 20 uh Reminds me of something that I didn't really think about consciously in my first watch of the film, but in my second watch, I was like, oh, I get it now. Is like this depiction of love is so absurdly childish in a way, like looking at it with a distance now of like, yeah, she tries to kill herself. She fills her bedroom with butterflies like she because he wrote like one passing line about butterflies and how they live so like temporarily and she was like oh that means that i'm going to get like create an entire butterfly garden in in her bedroom yes and it's very like manic pixie dream girl i mean i also get it though because i would be her in that situation I would be the really frustrated mom. 
you would be the broom sweeping up the dead butterflies. <laughs> Which was a really great image. I really liked that as the like end of that piece. Is that like for all that like this is a beautiful thing that is so like exciting and magical at the end of the day it's just a dead bug and like i don't know it just like speaks to the naivete of her utter devotion to him and her desire to kill herself by telling her younger sister to go ask her mother for a knife (laughs) yeah i mean i think that like Campion very smartly sort of, like, inserts these little punctures of, like, the grandness of the romance by making fun of the lovers. But, yeah, I mean, that's sort of, like, the only way, like, you can have this, like, extremely pure, extremely extremely wholesome, extremely chaste kind of movie, I think by having the characters be so young. I do think it's interesting that, like, we're talking about... Yeah, we have talked about movies, two movies that are 16 years apart, and the first one that we discussed is about older people, I think, uh, compared to this one. And I don't know. I feel like Jane Campion was probably just sort of, like, in a young and innocent sort of, like, mood uh, and probably just, like, wanted to do something that was more about, like, the... more about a kind of, like, unadulterated existence. Well, and I would think that, like, a little later on in her career, in her life, she's able to look back at that time of her life and of life in general with a much clearer eye so she can see the, like, beauty of it but then can also puncture it so well. Yeah. And so I, I think it makes sense. Can I hit you with the theory? Uh, yes. So what if now that Fan- Mrs. Braun, Fanny's mother, sees how recklessly and hopelessly devoted to um, Keats Fanny is, maybe she made sure that Keats got tuberculosis? <laughs> wow. So that she could put her own timer on things? That is some cute shit. It's what I would do. It absolutely <laughs> is what you would do. I will just say, like, one final thought, which is that so much of the... I feel like so much about, like, Jane Campion's work is about a, a certain kind of, like, forcefulness. And it's very interesting to see this, like, absolute softness coming from her. You have sort of, like, the softness of, like, the palette and, like, the English countryside, even though this whole movie takes place, like, in a village right outside of London. I think, like, all of the sensuousness of the movie is, like, really tender i think like one scene that like really stood out for me even though it's such a like a tiny fleeing scene is there's like a part where keats is touching fanny's like upper hand area and basically he slides his hand just a little bit like under her sleeve 
And it's like the barest movement. And yes, like, of course, it's like extremely suggestive, but like that's like the full extent of like their touching, basically, other than kissing. And it's, yeah, it's really beautiful. And you're sort of just like, ah. And then there's all this like male uh, tenderness and sensitivity. Um, I already mentioned the cat thing. I think there's also like a scene where Keith is just like sitting around and he has like a flower like tucked behind his ear. And there's one of the most beautiful shots of the film of him laying in a flower bush. Like on top of a flower bush. So that right, he's just yeah, like, like fully it's surrounded by flowers. Feminized image in that way that like he is just surrounded by this these flowers and nature, but like in a very submissive and open way. Yeah. And if we're sort of thinking about like the piano and this movie as um, kind of arbitrary bookends to her work, you sort of have like this epic ethereality of the piano and sort of this like much more like tamed masculinity, this like soft boy quality uh of bright star and like do i think that this is like the best movie ever made no but did i really appreciate just like a lot of it's like very small very soft gestures like yeah this is like a world that i would love to luxuriate in for a couple of hours yeah this is a movie i would certainly recommend to people i all like I loved it. I thought it was really great and well done, and I enjoyed both watches of it. I think that watching both of these films now, when we did our first season, I felt like, and this is, I think, partially because of Almodovar's style and writing and his approach to film, I was very aware of a lot of the themes that he was working with so quickly, and those are themes that recur in every single one of his works practically. Whereas I still don't have the feeling yet of like what Jane Campion's, what all of the things that she's interested in exploring are as an artist. But like, I really enjoy her devotion to the like strength of woman and of femininity and how like, she seems so interested in the like in exploring the independence of women, especially in situations where independence is not something given to them. So that's our discussion of Bright Star. Next week, we are going to be discussing Campion's very first feature, Sweetie. And we will be joined by our very favorite guest, David Rooney of The Hollywood Reporter. Rooney! <laughs> Rooney, Rooney, Rooney. Oh, Are yeah, they channeling total, like total this? Total bro. <laughs> we will skip doing rankings for this week, because I think Daniel and I are in agreement that The Piano is a better movie, or like a more impactful movie than Bright Star. Uh, but hopefully we will have some really fun disagreements over rankings next week. Until then, I'm Ingu Kang. I'm Daniel Schrader. Talk to you next time.
I guess I should Beautiful. come up with something better than, yeah. That's I mean, it. it, could, it could, <laughs> <laughs> wow, there it is. Yeah. <laughs>